0: The following is an encore presentation of The Bridge with Peter Mansbridge, originally broadcast on May 15th. And hello
1: there, Peter Mansbridge here. You are just moments away from the latest episode of The Bridge. The topic today, the politics of the lie. The Moore Butts conversation takes that subject head on today. Mm -hmm. Welcome to uh, New Week. Peter Mansbridge here in uh, Toronto for this day. And it's uh, Moore butts conversation number eight today. And, you know, it's amazing that we've got to number eight. When I first started this off, you know, sometime last year, the whole idea was to put these two, you know, political heavyweights, if you will, together in a room and let them talk about subjects and hope they wouldn't go over that partisan line. But stay in an information line so we could try to understand whatever the particular issue of the day was. Well, it worked. And it keeps working. And today in conversation number eight, I think we may well have the best one that we've done so far, although they've all been pretty good. James Moore, the former Conservative Cabinet Minister um, in the uh, Harper government, had a number of different portfolios. And uh, today, he's a senior policy advisor for the Dentons Group um, and also uh, works for uh, Edelman as well, uh, with similar kind of uh, advice to that big, huge international public relations firm. As for uh, Jerry Butts, Jerry Butts is a former principal advisor to uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. He's a liberal, of course. Uh, He is now the vice chair of the Eurasia Group, which advises governments and businesses around the world on questions of uh, foreign policy and others. Climate change. He's a climate change expert uh, himself. Anyway, so there you go. That's kind of the, the setup. The conversation this week is on the politics of the lie. We've all watched Uh, You know, and some of us feel, oh, well, there's always been lying in politics. Well, yeah, to a degree, to some extent, but nothing like it is today. And we tend to point at one person for being responsible for this, but there's more than that. Although there's certainly enough grist for the talk mill in talking about that one person. And you know who I'm talking about when I say that. So enough from me, let's get to our conversation because I find this one really, really good. There's some very good uh, moments in this conversation. So here we go. The uh, Moore-Butts conversation, number eight. All right, gentlemen, I want to start with uh, your basic reaction to what we witnessed on Thursday night on CNN with with Donald Trump, um, James is actually on the record with his Thursday night tweet. This is what it said: Trump tonight refused to call Putin a war criminal, continued to fuel insurrection-inducing lies about the 2020 election, laughed about sexual abuse, promised to pardon January 6 rioters, and claimed he finished the wall. The disgrace never ends.
2: Got anything to add to that today, James? Uh, it wasn't just the spectacle of Donald Trump that was upsetting. That, that actually, the most upsetting part was him uh, dismissing and continuing to um, abuse the character of a woman who was found to have told the truth that Donald Trump sexually assaulted her. There was a it was a unanimous jury decision that found that, of Donald Trump's peers who who decided that Donald Trump did sexually uh, uh, assault a woman. And that he defamed her in his efforts to, to defend himself. And about that conversation, there are people in the audience who who laughed and thought it was really funny in the way in which Donald Trump um, continued to insult um, this victim of sexual assault. Um, I think that was kind of the, the, the nadir of it. On the other hand, I, I don't agree with those who have said that CNN should not have platformed him. Donald Trump is the former president of the United States. Donald Trump is the likely nominee for the Republican Party. Donald Trump has the support of over 40% of Americans who want this um, who who want this kind of stuff back into the White House. It's shocking to say, but the truth is the truth. Donald Trump and the and the reputation that he's built around his economic policy, and I'm using air quotes with my fingers, his economic policy and, and the perception of what it is, which is you know pro-business and tough and fiscally responsible and all that. None of that is true. It's all a meme. But but his economic policies and the perception of them are, are far more popular in public opinion polling than than are Joe Biden's. And there's also the perception of a genuine border crisis now with Mexico. If, if the Mexican border crisis continues to emerge and gets exploited and, and gets torqued up and the economy continues to be an issue, if the America does slip into a recession later this year and Joe Biden continues to underperform, Donald Trump could very well, uh, and it's absolutely plausible that he'd be the president of the United States again. So those are the two most shocking things to me is the substance of what Donald Trump said, yes, but the audience reaction to it. And then the fact that people are talking and criticizing CNN for platforming a guy, people who are opposed to Donald Trump better start getting serious and honest with themselves about the fact that there is a large number of Americans, a massive cohort of Americans, almost half of Americans, like what they saw, like what they see, and want him back in the White House. And well, people need to be honest about that.
1: How do you, uh, and I I hear you on that, but how does that square with your last
2: line, the disgrace never ends? Well, well, a lot of people like a lot of disgraceful things. Uh, uh, politics is not about politics is a, is about the choices in front of you. Right. And, and it is what it is. And for a lot of Americans, because of the um, polarization of American politics, Donald Trump represents a lot of things that they like, which is that he's an outsider. He breaks the mold. The Bushes, the Obamas, the Clintons, the Bidens, the media and Hollywood all hate him. And just therefore, you know, uh, yeah, ipso facto. He, he must represent them because he hates all of the establishment because their lives aren't going well they're not happy with the way the world works and if they hate him he must be my guy so so in spite of all the and also you know both political parties have spent generations um smearing politics tearing down politics saying the other side are a bunch of corrupt liars you know Bill Clinton was responsible for um you know for for sexual assault uh, Clarence Thomas is a, is a rapist Bill Clinton is a sexual assaulter Bill Clinton was responsible for the death of his friend who committed suicide in, in a park just near the Pentagon like we could spent many many years many decades Tearing down and destroying the reputation of politics and government and politicians. So when a guy like Donald Trump actually comes along, who in, tries to incite an insurrection, who has actually now been found guilty of of sexual assault, who has um, who has been twice been impeached, who has thirty four indictments against him in New York for business fraud, people just go, yeah, I know. Well, they're all kind of scumbags, aren't they? And it's like this is where we are, and it's and it's and it's shocking. Jerry. Well, it's hard to follow that,
0: James. <laughs> uh, I I certainly agree with almost everything you said, though. It's and it's in particular this last point of the long term. I've used this analogy many times that it's like the public square has been flooded slowly with toxic sludge, and it's happening here too to, to a, uh, at a much lower velocity. But in the United States, it's impossible to overstate how corrupt your average American thinks your average politician is and once you establish that as a base rate it's very difficult to um, There's there are a lot of cliches about this and fairy tales and lessons from um, uh, history but this is a, a boy who cried wolf situation about American politics as a whole there actually is a wolf in the uh, public square now and nobody can recognize it or at least 40 percent of the American public is not recognizing it. And I I, you know, I've been banging this drum for a little bit, Peter, but I think Donald Trump is the clear front runner to become the next president of the United States. And I think that Joe Biden is in trouble. And it's not because of anything he's done as president, but the visual presentation of those two men side by side is not going to favor the Democrats in the election. You're talking about the age factor. I mean, it's not like Trump. I'm talking school. about everything, everything about it. You know, that I used to say when I was in act politics that the people who win the pictures usually win the campaign. Right. And um, building momentum is about creating a consistent visual narrative that tells a story that paints a picture of a community of people that you want to belong to. And that's true in business. It's true in politics. It's true in just about everything. And Biden's got no energy. And I know people make fun of the way Trump uses that all the time, that he's low energy. But like most of the um, memes that and Donald Trump is nothing else, if not a meme factory every time he opens his mouth, most of the memes that he has generated, there's a kernel of truth to them. And I really worry about what that looks like side by side, because we forget the 2020 campaign was a very unusual campaign. Joe Biden could get away with not campaigning because we were all in our basements, right? Famously. And the, the Trump campaign tried to make an issue of that. And when Trump did start to develop some momentum at the end of the campaign was when he said, screw it, I'm going to go do these rallies anyway. Right. And, Tens of thousands of people uh, saw Donald Trump and those pictures got broadcast on uh, the national news and all around the social media, uh, various social media platforms. And it created this sense of momentum. And I think that um, we really underestimate the uh, we've kind of lived through this peaceful interregnum, right, where we've had a couple of years of Joe Biden and the United States has almost felt normal. Uh, If you're in Canada or in uh, the United States is doing a bunch of things that we expect the United States to do. It's alliance building, it's facing down Russia, it's leading the charge against climate change. It's doing a bunch of stuff that a lot of people, especially Canadians, would prefer to see the United States doing. But that structural polarization that James mentioned is still very present. And it could return with a vengeance if uh, the campaign breaks
2: in the wrong way that the point jerry just made about the 2020 campaign because you know you talk to and i've talked to many democrats in the united states they say well everything is easier the second time biden beat him the first time and it's easier the second time and now trump has been indicted and so so therefore like there's just there's just too big of a gap there's no way and i and it i it's so foolish for people to think that you know joe biden will be four years older than he has been um the the cycle of the economy is trending in the wrong direction the immigration crisis that that I that I just said is is a reality as well and also the dynamics of 2020 like every single election campaign in Canada every single election campaign in the United States it's a science of single instances which is to say it's no science at all they are all it's a it's a moment in time influenced by a constellation of issues around that particular date on the calendar that are unique to each circumstance and The COVID point that Jerry makes is an important one. Uh, And and I think thoughtful observers who now now that we have some distance from November 2020, thoughtful observers have all said Joe Biden didn't win by actually that much. There's about 80,000 net votes in three swing states that were the difference between him and Donald Trump getting a second term. Uh, and so, and, and if you take COVID out of it and the entire narrative, because that was peak COVID, right? The 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 vaccines were just coming in. We were starting to get back up. We were starting to glimpse into 21. But but summer and fall of 20 was peak COVID in terms of the accumulated deaths and the accumulated lies about COVID that were be, then being spilled by the Trump administration about, you know, about, you know, Invermectin and, and all this sort of nonsense. And this is no big deal. It'll go away in a year. And like all that stuff was catching up. So he was calling in a lie that had massive public consequence that ultimately a million, more than a million Americans have died of COVID, there was a real public policy failure that had, it wasn't just a matter of opinion, like all that's going to be gone. And Donald Trump looks vibrant and young and energetic and thoughtful and and articulate against uh, you know uh, joe biden at at this point in in his life and th- that's a in terms of energy and going forward and, and and you know everybody has their strengths and weaknesses like i think you you can say in a, in a pure marketing uh, analysis like the the strengths of donald trump um in in the moment he is He looks strong. He presents as tough. He presents as jingoistic. He does habitually present himself as America first, and I'm going to have America's back. Like people, if you're looking through the lens and you want to believe that message, he looks like a consistent and firm and clear messenger to the audience that he's trying to appeal to. It's very hard to say that about Joe Biden. All right. Let me. I uh, I could sidetrack and
1: go into a, a debate about how articulate he looks, but uh, I'll, I'll ignore that and and stay on on to the his fo- audience. Yeah, his to his audience perhaps. But let's say on the focus that we were trying to uh, achieve here, and that is the this whole question of the lie. I mean, Jerry uh, mentioned a few moments ago that there's a kernel of truth in a lot of what uh, Trump says. Um, yeah, there's also kind of an avalanche of lies that, <laughs> that totally. tends to blow up totally. that, that kernel. But I I want to try to understand how we got to this point because, I mean, there's no doubt that Thursday, the basis of his performance was was the lie. I mean, he, he told Absolutely. it repeatedly, time yeah. after time after time. Uh, it, it, it's not a surprise. We've known Trump as a liar for years. I, I can recall days after the inauguration, I called him a liar on the air, and I, I got kind of taken to the woodshed by not only my colleagues, but, but but CBC management at that time said, well, you can't use the L word. And a lot of people had that same theory in, a, in the American networks. But now it's common, like everybody calls him a liar all the time. Uh, there's no hesitation in using the in the L word. How has it come to this where, where lying seems to have become, and it's not just Trump, but he's the most obvious uh, target uh, when you go this way. But how, how has it become an accepted
0: part of the the political toolbox, if you wish? Jerry, we start us here. I, I think Trump is a special case. There are other liars in politics, but it's sort of like comparing when people compare someone to Hitler, right? There's only one Hitler, There's only one Donald Trump and nobody has as success has created as big and successful a political career out of constantly lying, quite like Trump. And I think it it gets back to (laughs) as much as I hate to say this, it's it's part of his personal brand and it always has been. I remember when I was a kid, my dad used to read what he called the papers every weekend. And those were the Globe and the Star. And I don't mean the Globe and Mail and the Toronto Star uh, and the National Enquirer. And we would get them at the grocery store every weekend and he would read them and he would pass them around to his friends. And they would. uh, This is a retired coal miner. Right. So put put yourself in that picture. And many of us, including some of his kids, used to scratch our heads at it but it was entertainment for him he never confused it with news right he was also a huge fan of yours Peter and he watched you religiously and he loved public affairs but somewhere along the line we've lost the ability to differentiate streams of information and this gets back to the analogy of flooding the the public square with toxic sludge Donald Trump has been part of that from the very beginning so when the Democrats tried to tell Americans in 2016 that Donald Trump was a bad guy Americans already knew that they had seen him in the pages of the National Enquirer for 30 years they had seen him in the middle of the ring in WWF and then WWE for 20 years he had made himself part of the lifeblood of popular American culture in a more intimate way, I would argue, than anybody who'd ever run for president successfully. So there was nothing you could tell the average American in Ohio about Donald Trump that he or she didn't already know, and they bought into the spectacle. So the lying was part of the brand, but it was never the point. And um, I think people are willing to overlook it, the people who love him and are part of his tribe. They just expect it. And for people like us to stand back and say, oh, how can they believe that they look at us and say, well, we've known that about this guy all along, but he's our guy, right? He's our guy. And that of course is the big lie because he couldn't be more the opposite. Right. Um, but he's created this almost unbreakable brand for himself that is impervious to any individual action he takes or individual statement he utters.
2: James. There's also, I, I agree with all that. The, the, also this context, because like, you, you, you frame the question, sort of we, you know, where we're at today. We, we have had now, you know, about 15 years, uh, it's hard to peg a date on it, but of uh, sort of collapsing trust in major institutions that have led people to sort of say, well, look, uh, you're asking me like, the thing about the lie you're asking me to trust. It's like, well, what, what I remember the most trusted man in American politics Colonel Colin Powell, who became General Colin Powell, who became Secretary of State Colin Powell, I remember him going to the floor of the United Nations and making the argument for WMD Iraq. I remember that. I I remember. I remember. That. I rem- and it's not even just on a large scale like that. And he said, well, you know, so I, so I can't trust, we could never trust politicians. But, but Colin Powell was at one point the most respected man in the United States. He If he ran for president, he'd win in a shoe-in and all that. Like, and and he he did that. And then you you look at other institutions, and it's it's a collapse of institutions everywhere. You think about um, the National Football League lying about what they knew about the Ray Rice incident, knocking out his 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 girlfriend in an elevator and covering that up. You think about the concussion crisis in football and them trying to cover that. think about Major League Baseball lying about the steroid scandal. You think about you know. The year the year that Donald Trump won the nomination to be the Republican nominee for president, you know what movie won Best Picture that year in 2016 or the 15, the year that he launched Spotlight, which is a movie about what collapse of trust in the Catholic Church and the covering up of the sexual abuse and torture of jailed children. Collapse of trust and you can go institution after institution. the 2008 economic crisis, the collapse of trust in institutions, banking and regulations and protecting people and their assets, their homes and the financial structure about the most important economic decision of your life and the collapse and the hundreds of thousands of people who lost all of their life savings. So like, no matter where you went, sports, football, military, the treatment of our veterans, you know, our, our most trusted people in public life, it was just a collapse of trust everywhere so Donald Trump comes along and he's a liar well yeah well whatever what isn't lying to me these days and and the tectonic shift that was the 08 economic crisis and the collapse of trust and everything around it and people say well look at Donald Trump he's lying he's not really going to build a wall like Mexico's going to pay for it come on they say well it's as good a lie as any other one out there and I I remember going to the 2016 um I was in I was in Cleveland at the Republican convention as an observer doing some media and walking around the halls of that convention, chatting with delegates there, right? And I would say, you know, and and it was interesting because they were, they were kind of in two groups. There were people sort of who were just trying to will their version of the world into reality. And it was, as I say, there there are people who it's like they believe that professional wrestling is real. And you think, wow, like, I don't know where to start from with this argument. But then there were other people. And it, it was interesting because they were really cognizant of what they were seeing in front of them. And, and, they, and they would say, well, I'd say, why do you support Donald Trump? Because he's going to change. He's going to shake everything up he's going to build and I said but he's not really going to but build a 25 foot wall all the way across the, like, that's not real. And he, and said, no, no, he's going to build it. And I said, he's not really going to build it. And he goes, well, if, if anybody's going to build it, it'll be him. And he, at least he's going to try. And, and he's, he's saying what I want to, to hear because it's, it's good. Like, that's, that's how it should be. And at least he's going to try it. And, and screw like, like, let's just go for it. Like, what, what do we have to lose? Just go for it. And so they, they knew it was a lie. They knew it was a meme. They knew there was a skit going on. And they were playing their part in, in the crowd. But they, but it is comforting to them to try to, to take a lie and turn a lie into reality through the force of will and bravado. And, you know, it's is that toxic? Yes. But in some ways, for a lot of people, that represented hope, to sort of surrender to a mistruth and the hope that you could will it into existence, even though it's not quite true now. So there's there's a there's a psychology behind this in our democracy that I think we have to be aware of this uh this conversation is so good but it's so depressing i mean
1: you know i you know i'm you seem I'm, to say that after my interventions, <laughs> there. Well, you're, you're both in sync on a lot of this stuff i mean i'm old enough to to remember when a when a lie could be the basis or end up as a resignation you know that's not yeah. even on the uh, on the charts anymore it's, nobody even thinks about it um but uh, the picture you both paint is like so ugly. Uh, about now, I mean, like, where's this heading? What does this lead to? If this goes on like
0: unchecked, so here, here is the uh, good news,
2: <laughs> and it's been
0: very good news. I'm not sure if it's good news in an absolute sense, but it's definitely good news in relative to the in relation to the immediately previous conversation. Jen O'Malley-Dillon, who ran a Biden's campaign in 2016, I remember talking to her in uh, in, uh, 2020, talking to her in the run-up to it. Uh, We were planning our own campaign in 2019. And I said, so what's your message? And she said, Joe Biden's a good man and Donald Trump is a bad man. That is our message. And we think we can win the campaign on that because there are enough people in the United States who want a good person not a bad person in the White House. And I immediately thought, I'm not so sure about that, but it's really simple and clear. And if you stick to that, maybe, and it's obviously true. So if it's simple, clear, and obviously true, and you stick to it and paint the picture in compelling ways, you can probably win, and they did. Now, I still think that is true, but what has intervened in the meantime to mitigate that is, I think Biden, Notwithstanding what his doctor's reports say, notwithstanding what is actually going on inside his anatomy, he looks old and frail. And generally Americans do not want someone in the white house who projects, um, frailty. So I think it's going to be, as James said, it's 80,000 votes in a couple of, in a few states, and they're going to be hard to reconstruct. But I don't think I don't think we should take from the Donald Trump phenomenon the thought that all is lost about politics. There are very grave consequences, I think, that need to be managed and mitigated. If you're around the NATO table, if you're in the EU, if you're in Canada, if you worry about NAFTA, if you worry about a lot of things, there are a lot of things that need to be managed and mitigated. But I don't think we should come away from it with. The nihilistic conclusion that therefore all is lost in public life good people can
2: still do well you agree with that james i do i do agree with that the, the lying eventually catches up with you and lying eventually catches up with the country um you know you can talk about you know the accumulation of lies in any jurisdiction we're focusing on trump here i mean you know we, we can come home to canada and talk about different political Parties, you know, and you know you, we can put our, you know, we're, I know we're parking our partisan hats here, but 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 eventually you accumulate, and eventually the public just says, I, I just I'm i listening to this person because I just don't trust them anymore, and I, and I and I you just sort of shut them out. What maybe is required, in particular in the United States, is that th- there comes a point where a big lie doesn't just have consequences for Donald Trump and whether or not he has to pay a couple million dollars to somebody who he's been found guilty of sexually assaulting, uh, you know, a couple decades ago. But when when a lie has a consequence for me, you know, when when it was when when Gordon or when Glenn Clark, you know, was seen to be lying about the benefits of fast ferries in British Columbia and cost the Treasury millions of dollars in a boondoggle project. Well, now that affects me. Politicians will lie. But when it affects me, you hope, though, that the lie doesn't doesn't result in, um, you know, a catastrophic um, public policy. The WMD Iraq cost thousands and tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of lives unnecessarily, as it turns out. I think history is pretty clear on that. And then, of course, lost to the Treasury and all that. And the public said, wait a minute, so my I I know a friend who lost a friend and another buddy of mine who served is not being treated well. They've never really recovered PTSD, et cetera, et cetera. So so that lie is now why the Republican Party has only won the popular vote once in the last, I think, nine presidential elections. So the Republican Party has, which is among the reasons why the recorrection of the Republican Party now into an isolationist uh, anti-war party in the, in its own way, it has, is because they have to overcorrect to try to scrub that, that they're not the party that will go into useless wars, actually won't even back you know, appropriate military action in places like Ukraine because they were so stung by the overcorrection of the public against their party being in favor of wars that they don't need to be. So the overcorrection in that direction. So so I think when the lies accumulate and have public consequence, that's when everybody sort of retreats back and there'll be a counterbalance to Jerry's point, though, is that, you know, the the um, you know there are very good people and honest decent people but 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 i just think it's very very hard now because noise and heat is what is rewarded in politics not reason and substance and accomplishment and you know the the other day for this this passport issue in Canada which you talked about on your podcast this week I know Peter about you know the, the symbols and all that I was literally standing in line at Starbucks and I saw that I saw t- 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 people rattling around on Twitter about how Terry Fox and Vimy Ridge are taken up so I put forward a tweet and I just said wait a minute they've scrubbed Terry Fox and Vimy Ridge Memorial from the passport who approved that that's crazy and I literally put that tweet out and it's had like Five or six thousand likes and retweets, and there and there are literally ten or twenty streams of conversations going on going on about how this is this is how the Nazis got started. It's like whoa, like 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 we we've spiraled. It's like holy cow, like, yeah. who wants to who wants to put their hand up and their family into the grinder of this public square this time? Um, it's it that's the de- that, that's genuinely depressing things. But anyways, I, I I I hope that there's social learning and people realize that there's consequence that. Politics cannot just be about incitement; it has to be actually about problem solving and governing. Yeah, and I, I, I think you make a really important
0: point here, James, which is there's you like to think in a kind of cosmic way that lies always have consequences for the liars, but you know often they don't have many consequences for anybody else. And the difference between a lie that hurts somebody in your family and one that is just seen to be grist the daily mill of politics. There's a big gulf between those two things. And I don't think it's a stretch to say that Donald Trump lost in 2020, largely because of COVID. I think that is what you were inferring earlier, James. And there's a lie that cost people their lives, right? And and in the most profound and traumatic way, left an indelible scar on families, millions of them in the United States. So in, in a way, I think that, I don't want to say there's something hopeful about that, but maybe there's something reassuring about it that you can, you can basically lie until the lies have consequences for real people and real ways. And then they, um, they kind of stop listening to you or they turn away from you. Okay. We're going to take a a quick break. I I want to bring the other
1: element into the story, which is the media, how it plays things now and how it, uh, how it's got to reconsider, if at all, how it's going to play things in the future uh, as a result of the politics of the line. Uh, That, when we come back. And welcome back. You're listening to The Bridge, the Monday episode of More Butts. This is conversation number eight James Moore, the former Conservative Cabinet Minister, and Jerry Butts, the former top Liberal aide to the Prime Minister, both in new jobs, away from Parliament Hill these days, but uh, giving us their thoughts on uh, the issues of the day. You're listening on Sirius XM, Channel 167, Canada Talks, or on your favourite podcast platform. Okay, I want to talk about the media, because after Thursday night, CNN uh, is in the crosshairs for, for giving... An exposed liar, a twice-impeached, multi-indicted, convicted sexual abuser, a platform. Where are you on the media's role in this? Um, James, you start.
2: Um, I mean, as harsh, if not more harsh, because... Like the media quote, quote like it, it's it's a it's a difficult thing and, I, and I, it's a hard thing to analyze because people talk about the media quote. But I often think like to, to say let's have a conversation about media is like saying let's have a conversation about sport. What sport? Hockey, baseball, Olympic, amateur, professional, collegiate. Like what kids? Like what? So so media is a massive umbrella that, that constitutes a lot of things. Th- those who chronicle what has happened and put it and try to synthesize it and put it out for information conversation and to keep the public informed. That's one form of media, but that's a shrinking island. And, and it's being overwhelmed by people who think that that's what they're getting. But what they're actually getting are people who are running businesses and they're feeding people the the substance that they want. And you see it on the right. Of course, you see it on the left. Of course, you see it in both fronts. The the right tends to get scrutinized more, which says more about uh you know the 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 nature of the ideological composition of those who go into journalism but it happens everywhere and i think a lot of people into jerry said earlier don't often have they don't seem to disseminate between them all and they think that one is the other and 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 the other which is eventually essentially feeding the audience what they want to hear uh, and and placating their their base instincts and, and ideologies and biases for for the sake of the audience's comfort, and who pretend that that's actually sort of informed, objective. Here's what actually happened. News. I mean, those are the bad actors. But it's hard to smoke them out. Tucker Carlson, you know, has been smoked out, but he's welcomed onto a platform and is going to be making a lot more money on Twitter uh, because he's um, he's cultivating an audience and he's, he's running a business and he's not actually in the media and news environment and. Um, so you know, the, the, the media are broadly speaking, quote unquote, uh, are very culpable because they don't govern themselves. We see this, frankly, at the Press Gallery in Ottawa, and it's been going on for. Why is you know you know why are some of the clear bad actors members of the Press Gallery, like Frank Magazine, isn't are members of the Press Gallery and have been for years? Some of the independent journalists who are clearly just activists for on EDC and on, on either end. Our, our credentialed members, of the Press Gallery, who go to the Press Gallery dinner, who who spend their evenings on laptops trying to destroy people for for no other reason but fun and sport, rather than actually being so so, you know, where where is the self government amongst journalism to to have an honest conversation about their own profession? Um, you know, I think that's something that's very much missing in Canada and missing uh, uh, in in other jurisdictions around the world as well. sure
0: well, I, I find myself saying this a lot. I agree with James entirely. <laughs> the The thing I would add to it is there's no ballast in the ship anymore. It used to be that there were kind of out there media outlets in Canada, but overall they were kind of balanced by a few key uh, and um, people will see this as evidence of some conspiracy, but a few key outlets that you can count on to kind of tell the truth over time and that they were more interested in getting the public square righted than they were in selling newspapers or in this day and age driving clicks. And I just don't see that anymore. I was talking to a friend who works at CBC, not in not in front of a camera, but she was telling me about how at CBC headquarters these days, the walls are filled with screens telling you what's moving and what's not, right? That's, it's kind of like you're in an old style stock exchange where you're looking at price fluctuations over seconds minutes and hours if that's all you're focused on and this is certainly true of the global mail and the way they run their business now if all you're focused on is which stories are moving fastest and what's attracting the most attention then there's no way you're going to be focused on telling the news over time and uh you know, I've been a harsh critic of the Globe and Mail. Mail. Um, I've been a harsh critic of other media outlets, but I think I've been a fair one. I think they're they're following a business model and not the public interest. And um, the ones that I worry about aren't the ones that you expected from the far reaches of the left and right. It's the ones that used to be in the center that are behaving in the same way that you would have expected yellow journalism to behave in yesteryear. Okay. Let me, uh, let me. But what do you think, Peter? You always ask (laughs) us questions. You have a lot more experience in this than we do. Can I get Peter Mansbridge on record about Canadian journalism (laughs) and
1: where it's going? Well, I've I've actually said a few things lately, even about my old employer, the CBC, which is, you know, hasn't put me in good stead with some of them, but let me, um, let me pull the two of you back to this, the, the issue of the lie and the liar, how, How do you cover an unrepentant liar? Like, that was part of the debate surrounding last Thursday, right? Why why did they ever give him a platform? Why didn't they challenge him more? Although I thought Caitlin Collins did a hell of a job, all things considered. But how do you cover that person? Whether it's Trump or or whether it's somebody else you're convinced is constantly putting out, um, you know, lies, conspiracy theories, what have you. How do you cover that
0: well, I think, uh, again, I'm, I'm not a journalist, but I think that the way to cover is to describe the connection between the lie and what kind of effect it has for the audience, right? That it's not just that Donald Trump is lying about COVID. It's that COVID is now affecting millions more people than it would have had he been truthful about it in the beginning. And I think that that's, it's a difficult connection to make, but I think it's the most important connection to make. Otherwise, it all just sounds like talk. There's, there's I don't think you should get. I don't think you should let lies go unchallenged. That's for sure.
2: Yeah, and and you know, one of the I think one of the saving graces of, of a lot of this is it is the fact that we the, the tools are out there for for citizen journalists and people just to sort of expose people, right? And there, there's a law of averages. You know, even the best communicator. Uh, you, know, it, you know, the worst communicator will will drop the ball in one out of every five in- media interviews that they do, and then eventually the part you know, Canada party just say, well, let's go ahead and not put that person on a panel anymore, or or let's have them you know not go out and scrum after question period. Um, you know, great communicators will drop one in every ten thousand interviews, but eventually you will hit your mark. You eventually your law of right averages catches up with everybody, and the ability of the public now to sort of talk about this and put it out there and say, look, just this is just fact counter fact. This is just eventually over time there's just an accumulation of weight of evidence on on a person and you never know what is going to be the one lie or the one circumstance that's eventually going to catch up with people and again you know keeping it contemporary i mean it's you know the you know, what what did Justin Trudeau know about um, China in 2001 with Michael Chong. Like, is it plausible that Csis did their homework, presented it to PCO? Justin Trudeau either saw it and ignored it, or didn't see it, or like, like it, it eventually. Like, if that's the thing that you think is. The most important to you, because maybe maybe you're a member of the Chinese Canadian diaspora and you have real concern about the government and the way in which they're handling this. Maybe that's the thing in which you just say, you know, I just can't vote liberal anymore because I just don't believe them in this circumstance because this has a material impact to me or, you know, to be to be fair and to be cross partisan. Like if somebody says, you know, I've invested 20 years of my life into into scientific discovery and the idea that I have to go through the prime minister's communications shop to, to decide whether or not. The weather report that I'm going to put out there that will have an impact on agriculture on the west coast of British Columbia, that has to go through the minister's office before I have to say, OK, to do an interview in a regional paper about the shifting tides and the concerns that I have for the next 20 years. And that 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 has to be okayed by a political office. It's just wrong. Like, you know, so so people now have tools at their disposal to to talk about these things and put evidence on the table and the public can choose to dismiss them or not. That's the biggest Biggest anxiety that I have, but the tools with which people have to actually expose truth and to put it in, in front of the, the sunlight for for its for its effect uh, have have never been more manifest.
0: Just- I'll I'll give you a counterpoint to that though, Peter, which is um, the technology that is currently in rapid development to mislead people into believing lies, uh, i.e., uh, misinformation and disinformation generated by uh artificial intelligence is truly terrifying and um we will soon be able to video is still very hard but we will soon see images that we cannot distinguish from the real thing but they're generated by malign actors using high compute power uh, and that's in this environment the one that we're describing uh, that's something to be truly
2: worried about And in closed media environments, whether it's Russia, China, North Korea, um, you know, like you start, imagine these tools in the hands of someone like Ceausescu or where you can close off your borders and you can control the printing presses and the radio waves and, and so on. And you can control what people see in their television, radio, and in print. You know, we have seen that world before when you extend it to digital. And when there's just mass public confusion about what's real and what's not, that, that is a very toxic, uh, toxic dynamic. So therefore the, the, the need The fundamental need for us to have clear, transparent, verifiable, peer-reviewed silos or, or pipelines of objective truth of what's actually happening, you know, beliefs lose to the Florida Panthers. Like we, we know who scored, we know the score, we know it's verifiable, it's a factual, it's a it's a data point. Of what was in the federal budget, how much money was pledged, how much money was spent, what's gonna come up, you know, what are they expecting in terms of interest rates, what's the forecast for deficits and so like it's an objective truth. Like people who want to establish platforms of objective, clear truth. I think the public is craving for that because outside of whatever our biases, the public just uh, you know it, it part of the reason why we, we flick on whatever websites or pick up a paper or, or turn you turn into whatever station. See, I just want to know what the hell happened. Yeah. There was a boom, and there was a boom in the distance. What happened? Like there's a, there's a noise. Did a train derail? Did a <laughs> the power? Did something blow up? Did was it was just a firework? Like what happened over there? Do I pick up my phone and what platform do I go to to find out what the hell's happening around me? Small scale, large scale. There's, there's uh, frankly, money to be made, and economic, uh, an economic model there for people who can establish a platform of verifiable, objective truth that the public can tap into. Right. So that, and that's maybe my silver lining, counterbalance to Jerry is that he's right about the threat, but I think there, there's opportunity out there because the public, at the end of the day, you know, it's, it's a Darwinian impulse. We look for patterns. Yeah, we look for consistency. We, we look onto the horizon to see where the dangers are, and that has to be informed by objective truth. It, we are wired biologically through our Darwinian impulse to look for risk on the horizon, and we need to be informed by truth. And so I think in time, uh, the avenues for, for people to believe in something that is genuinely true and objectifiably true will present itself. All right. In other words, free markets work. I just want the record to show. <laughs> no, 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 I want, I I want the record to show, Peter,
0: that... It was James who raised yes, the Leafs. He went defeat a- at the end <laughs> of the. I, I was willing to let it go for the whole podcast. Yeah. He went.
1: He went a bridge too far on that
0: one. I must say. <laughs> but, um,
1: listen, we're we're out of time, but I want to stretch it by a minute to each of you uh, with this last question. Um, you know, we we like to think as Canadians that we're that were either pure from all this or we're close to being pure from all this. Trump makes it look like his use of lying makes him a winner and you know success is contagious. How does the system uh, prevent that from uh, infecting Canada with the same the same situation? So a, a, a minute to each of you. Um, Jerry first.
0: I think our 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 greatest and most important antibody or inoculation against that is our public school system. Frankly, I think that the fact that uh, I grew up in a relatively poor town in eastern Nova Scotia and had all the same opportunities as people who lived grew up in Rosedale uh, is largely due to the fact that we had strong public schools. And that's why I kind of spent first half of my career on that issue, but I think I think as long as we have that, where there's going to be a baseline of uh, inoculation against it, what I think is going to be problematic is just the, the technological advancement coupled with a chaotic media environment is making it very difficult for people to sort what's real and what's not. And it, it um, the ability to find like-minded people has been weaponized by some of the most technologically advanced communications platforms in the world to give you this sense of belonging to override your rational judgment of what's true and false, and that's really hard. And Canada has no
2: border against that.
1: All right, James, you got the final word.
2: Yeah. Well, I, I think I think two antidotes. One, in Kelly your question was, how do we not go down the rabbit hole? What they have in the United States. I think we have two antidotes in Canada that are that are actually helpful. One is actually our system. in the United States they they don't have a question period. we malign question period and attack question period but but there actually is an infrastructure in Canada and an expectation that the political parties will face each other live on television live, uh, in front of the world and square off and have a have a debate and hold each other accountable. Sometimes, obviously, it's ugly and blustery and irresponsible. But the United States, like Donald Trump is apparently going to run for the nomination and he's not going to debate his opponent. And there's talk that Joe Biden will be the Democratic nominee and he's not going to debate Donald Trump because why bother? Why and why take the risk of exposing, you know, his energy versus Donald Trump's and all that? But in the United States, you have competing press conferences and competing rallies and, and, and so on. You don't actually have a direct head-to-head collision on a consistent basis where people hold each other accountable yes i know it sometimes it's ugly but but in our system we actually do do that and and it's it's actually a very important mechanism for for people to sort of see because real recognizes real people can smell bs a mile away and you can kind of say that well that, that argument is not no 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 i see what you're trying to do that's not quite true and and, the, and just the, the just the fact of the exposure of the actors in an environment that forces accountability is mm-hmm. a very healthy thing and then the second one is the, the one that i just referred to is that I think it's not just economics. I think we have a I think we have an impulse of biological Darwinian need for clarity and to mitigate risk for the survival of our communities and ourselves. And that requires us to have an input of of truth and data that is clear and, and verifiable. And we want that. We seek that out with weather, with sports, with stock markets. We seek it out with regard to the safety of our vehicles, with regard to the safety of our parks, and all like we, we need it. We we need it, and we need it with government, and we need it with what's going on in the world. And we and, and as soon as a, a news outlet breaks that trust, uh, they are no longer trusted. And so and so the I think the market force of the public expecting and needing clarity and certainty in what's happening around them will 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 cause platforms to emerge that have the trust of the public. All right. Um, I seem
1: to say this after each one of our conversations, uh, and that is that it was fascinating. Uh, and, and this truly was, I think, of uh, of the eight we've done now. I think this uh, this may well be the best one. Uh, the audience will determine that, and I'm sure we'll, we'll hear from them as, uh, as we often do. And we'll try and squeeze in another one before we uh, we take our summer breaks at the end of June. So, uh, gentlemen, thanks so much for this. Really enjoyed it.
0: Always a pleasure, Peter. Thank you.
1: Well, there you go. The Moore-Butts conversation number eight. James Moore was in Vancouver. Jerry Butts was in Ottawa. And uh, as I said, I, I you know, I, I look forward to hearing from you, uh, from those of you who actually listen to the conversation. Every once in a while I'll get stuff, whether it's on our YouTube channel or or to um, to the podcast Which is clearly, you know, shots that are being taken by people who haven't even listened to the program, right? They look at the title and then they they react accordingly. Um, I just toss those. But the vast majority of you um, uh, do have thoughtful comments about the discussions that we have, including on the More Butts Conversation uh, in this case, number eight, the politics of the lie. So if you want to uh, drop me a line, please do. It's the Podcast at gmail.com. The mansbridgepodcast at gmail.com. So that's it for uh, this day. Uh, thanks so much for listening. Really, uh, really enjoyed today's conversation. Hope you did as well. We'll talk to you again in 24 hours.
0: You've been listening to an encore presentation of The Bridge with Peter Mansbridge, originally broadcast on May 15th.